Career Conversations is brought to you by the University of Washington Alumni Association. 60,000 Huskies strong, our members share a passion for the purple and gold. Share your pride, get involved, and help support our students. Join the UWAA. Go to uwalum.com today. Building resilience requires teamwork at every level, from vision setting to execution. University of Washington Resilience Lab Director Megan Kennedy joins us to talk about the importance of collaboration and relationships in helping organizations deepen their capacity and build more resilient communities. Welcome to Career Conversations, an audio series created by the UW Alumni Association for the UW Alumni Community. Here, we meet with leaders and experts for in-depth career discussions you won't find anywhere else. I'm Gina Topp, your host for this episode. I'm a triple dog, holding three degrees from the UW. I have experience in government and policy through my work at King County, and I recently started my own law firm. Joining me today is UW's Megan Kennedy. Megan is the director of the UW Resilience Lab, which promotes well-being at the UW and works to cultivate a passionate community. Currently, Megan is developing and evaluating system-based approaches to well-being that combines applied research, education, and collaborative program across the UW's three campuses. She's also a licensed therapist with more than two decades of experience in public and private practice. Megan, thank you for joining us on Career Conversations. Thank you, Gina. I'm looking forward to being in this conversation with you. So first question, Megan, you direct the UW Resilience Lab. Can you tell us a little bit about the lab and your career path that led you to this unique position? Yeah, I would love to. So the University of Washington Resilience Lab was founded in 2015 by my predecessor, Dr. Ann Browning. And Browning is now with UW Medicine, also working on resilience and well-being initiatives. So we're still close collaborators. Um, she founded the Resilience Lab um, Stemming from her work supporting students with academic success, she was really interested in concepts like resilience. Um, at the time, she was interested in concepts like uh, growth mindset and um, what it takes for students to um, overcome failure, maybe their first uh, experiences of not doing well academically, or maybe they have a history of having a rough time and just giving people more skills and mindsets to be able to cope with challenging situations. Um, in 2000. And 19, um, I became the interim director of the Resilience Lab and have been uh, the director um, since later that year. Um, my pathway here is I, um, I spent the first decade and a half of my career um, working with young people, uh, primarily um, youth, adolescents, and their families. Um, I worked really closely with LGBTQ, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning communities in East King County, supporting them as a mental health therapist. Um, and so in that work, I sat with young people individually in therapy sessions um, with their family members. And then I also led a support group um, for young people around gender and sexual diversity every Thursday for over a decade, six to eight o'clock. 
um, in, of all places, the Bellevue and Redmond and Kirkland community, which always sort of surprised people that that's where that group was held. But what we found there was that gender and sexuality was just a really like um, sort of silenced issue and having a group there was really meaningful. Um, in that work, I became really interested in some of the themes that would emerge in therapy, a lot having to do with how young people were coping with their home environments, uh, their school environments or the community or extracurriculars that they were involved in. And so to me, the relationship between mental health and the like spaces that we're in, the context that we exist in became um, what I became really interested in exploring. And so that's what led me to the University of Washington to begin to think about um, how do we create environments, um, in this case, a higher ed environment, but um, we could be thinking about community environments or other types of learning environments or work or organizational environments that support people's mental health and well-being. So that the onus isn't just on an individual to be able to cope with the environment effectively, but also that we're creating environments that help people thrive and flourish. So to bring it back to your question, the purpose of the Resilience Lab is to think about how do we create a culture of well-being at the University of Washington and how do we help other organizations and learning institutions create cultures of well-being that help people um, flourish uh, while at the same time, helping individuals be able to cope with stress effectively, because that's a very helpful set of skills and mindsets to have in everyday life, um, but not having the intervention always be focused on individual coping strategies. I think we need to see people as existing in these kind of layers of systems and that we need to expand the mental health interventions across the system. And so that includes thinking about how do we create classroom environments that support well-being, uh, campus culture, organization, policies, et cetera, all the way across that ecological system. Um, so at the Resilience Lab, we have a set of programs and initiatives that are exploring that theme and researching um, how effective we are at creating those types of system-level interventions. That's really fascinating to learn a little bit more about the UW Resilience Lab and also uh, the pathway that brought you there. It sounds like some really difficult work. Thank you for sharing that, Megan. Um, today, we're going to talk a little bit about being resilient to stress, especially at work. Um, can you talk a little bit about stress to start? Yeah. So oftentimes when we teach about resilience, we start with that very question. So I appreciate you starting there. Um, when I think about stress or when the Resilience Lab team is is teaching about stress, um, we first break stress down into having two sources. One is the, the stress or the stimulus itself, so the thing that's happening to us. Um, and then the second part of stress is our reaction to it. So I'm going to start with talking about the source of stress, because even being able to identify what kind of stress we're experiencing is really helpful in helping us cope with it effectively. So for example, there's different types of stress. Sometimes um, we kind of think of all stress is the same, and then we try to cope with it all the same. Um, but it's helpful to think about the type of stress we're experiencing. So we might be experiencing like a daily hassle. Today on my way to campus, there was a lot more traffic than there was yesterday, and I found myself feeling kind of impatient about it. So I noticed like the stressor was a daily hassle. It was also um, acute, like it was time limited. It was just in the moment that I was in the traffic. It wasn't chronic, for example. Um, and 
And I was also noticing that second part of stress, which is my reaction to it, where I was like, oh, I'm notably impatient. I'm feeling irritated by this traffic. So those are the two sources. Going back to the types of stressors, daily hassles like traffic, um, there's stress that can be more chronic. Um, so stress that we're experiencing, you know, uh, for longer periods of time. Um, and then there's accumulated stress, like stress that kind of like uh, accumulates over a period of time. And when we're able to identify what type of stress we're experiencing and observe that, it helps us think about how we might want to manage it um, differently. So the way I manage a daily hassle is going to be different than the way that I handle chronic stress. Um, and even the way that I perceive the stress, knowing that it's short term can be helpful in and of itself. So for example, if I'm stressed out about an exam or a work assignment that I have due, just being able to um, think about it as being short term can help in and of itself, as opposed to thinking of it as like in this everlasting stress that's never going to go away. Um, and so, uh, so first of all, the first part is just like observing the stress and being able to name it accurately. Um, and then the second part of it is noticing our response to it. And when I talk about noticing our response to stress or noticing our reaction, um, I'm referring to like, what meaning am I making about the stress? Like what thoughts am I having? Uh, what emotions are present? What sensations am I experiencing? Sensations are things like, uh, my shoulders are really tense, or I have like my uh, butterflies in my stomach, or I'm getting hot, those types of things. Um, and being able to observe our reaction to stress uh, helps us create a little bit of distance between um, ourselves and that reaction. And it gives us a little bit of like agency to be able to change our reaction if we want to, um, as opposed to a stress happening and us having an automatic reaction and not having the ability to like um, have any flexibility with how we respond to that stress. And so I know for me personally, I want to have some flexibility with how I respond to stress. If something happens, I want to be able to have some choice around how I deal with it. And that's been um, important for me. And what I've like really committed a lot of my career to is helping people be able to respond to stress in ways um, that's a little bit more flexible and therefore um, maybe constructive. So um, if you don't mind me, keep going. Uh, yeah, no, please. Okay. I, I love, I, I haven't really thought of it. Like, you know, observe when, when you're feeling a stress, observe what that stressor is and then observe what your reaction is and really thinking about it. It seems like that, that is a practice I could put into place and it's sort of in my, my own life. So I appreciate that. Yeah, but please keep going. Yeah. It's all about those, those two parts of the observation, observing the stress and noticing it and then noticing our reaction to it. Um, and then we can be curious about our reaction, um, in that observation. The alternative is sometimes we experience what's referred to as like our automatic stress response, which I'm sure you've heard of before and the others who are listening, which is when we, a stressor occurs and let's say I'm, um, in a work environment and I receive an email and it makes me, uh, it makes me feel angry and so the emotion I'm experiencing is the reaction I'm experiencing is anger. I might have some thoughts about what I just read in the email. I might notice that my heart rate is increasing and I'm getting hot. So those are the thoughts and the emotions and the sensations. Um, I might have some stories about what this email means, some interpretations, some perceptions. All of that is happening. And I go into either fight, flight, or freeze mode. That's our automatic stress response when that kind of old survival part of our brain takes over and we go into fight, flight, or freeze. 
um, fight and flight are like a hypoarousal, a hyperarousal response, and then freeze is like a hypoarousal. Um, so the email comes in, and maybe I go into fight mode, and without even pausing, I start to reply, and I reply da 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 da, and I push send, and then maybe a little bit later I'm like, oof, maybe I should have waited, right? I think we've all been in yeah. that situation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've certainly been there. I've also been in the situation where I've received that email. And I've um, invited myself to just take a beat and to just notice like, wow, I'm having a like really strong reaction to this email. I'm hot. My heart rate's, you know, increased. Um, I feel angry. I'm, I'm making up a bunch of interpretations about this. I think I'm just going to pause, maybe close my laptop, step up, step away from the situation for a moment and kind of just observe what's happening and see if I can, what we call like return to my window of stress tolerance. So if you imagine us having a window of tolerance that we exist in most of the day and we handle stress reasonably well throughout the day, but then the email comes in and we go into fight, flight, or freeze, we might need to take a moment so that we can return to our window of tolerance before we reply to the email. Because when we reply to the email, when we're outside of our window of tolerance, we might regret our actions or what we say, whatever behavior is there. And this can happen in work. This can happen at home. Um, you know, when we feel like someone says something in our home environment, we want to walk out the front door and slam the door. You know, it's a version maybe of flight or something happens and we go into kind of more of a cathartic, like frozen paralysis state that's freeze. And different people in different types of situations cause all of us as humans to, to have that kind of automatic stress response. It's not something we necessarily can avoid altogether. But being able to notice what types of stressors trigger it um, and having some tools to be able to return to our window of stress tolerance when we've been kicked out or having some tools to be able to expand our window of stress tolerance um, day in and day out is uh, helps with uh, our ability to cope with stress effectively. It helps, which is another way of thinking about resilience. So, yeah, so I'm I. I'm starting to understand, I think, a little bit more about the work that you do. So the lab teaches skills and mindsets to cope with stress effectively. And that's really what you mean by resilience? Yeah. So I think about resilience as the ability to, um, you know, when faced with some kind of challenging situation, be able to um, cope with it effectively and, um, and at its best learn something from that experience as well. Uh, and continue to move forward. I think that sometimes um, we uh, might put too much emphasis on individuals being resilient through really hard, difficult, adverse situations, um, and then celebrate that type of resilience. So sometimes I'm a little hesitant to not talk to, to talk about resilience without talking about the fact that um, we also need to be focused on um, improving the external environment so people don't always have to be resilient. So when I think about issues like with my clients experiencing sexism and homophobia, transphobia, uh, racism, um, sexism, I already said that, then I think, well, um, it's not enough just to put the onus on people to be resilient to that kind of stress and oppression. We also need to be like working actively toward um, improving those types of environments and contexts. And at the same yeah. time, nice. it's helpful to teach the skills. So that's my that's my resilience caveat. Uh, <laughs> um, I just don't want to to I guess promote the message that um, 
the entire responsibility is on us being resilient. I think that it's, I think that it's looking at the entire environment, helping the individual and then also improving our contexts. Yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate that. We just, someone doesn't need to be resilient all of the time. There are environmental factors that also need to maybe change. Yeah. Well said. Um, so um, can you tell me a little bit about uh, what you mean by mindfulness? Yeah. So there's a, there's a set of different skills and mindsets that, um, that help us being resilient to stress um, to help us cope with those challenging situations that help us expand our window of tolerance or return to it when we've been kicked out. Um, mindfulness being one of them, which I can explain. Um, other types of skills and mindsets that the resilience lab promotes um, based on like what we know through research helps us with being resilient are um, skills and mindsets like growth mindset, which I mentioned earlier, uh, one of the concepts that really was the impetus for starting the resilience lab, um, a concept called self-compassion, which is like compassion, but turned inward, um, gratitude. So there's a lot of different types of skills and mindsets that support our resilience. Mindfulness um, is really foundational, in my opinion, to, to building resilience. And I can I can talk a little bit about why. Probably would help to start with just a basic overview of what mindfulness is. Um, that, that would be helpful for me. <laughs> okay, yeah. And then after that, I can talk a little bit about what its relationship to resilience is. But um, in essence, mindfulness, a word that, that we, we, is pretty ubiquitous, ubiquitous these days, is, um, is essentially being, uh, being in the present moment, um, being, being in the present moment and paying attention on purpose um, to our thoughts, um, to our feelings, to our sensations, um, and to the external environment. And so um, it's about uh, doing all of that, being, paying attention on purpose to our thoughts and feelings and sensations with, a, you know, a spirit of like curiosity and non-judgment. So just being really aware and conscious um, and, uh, just, yeah, like kind of curious and, uh, present with what's happening around us and then inside of us, um, all at once. Um, I have a few things to say about mindfulness. Um, being mindful allows us to be like in the present moment. Um, and when it comes to our thoughts, so for example, it allows us to be in the present moment. So we're not necessarily ruminating about the past nor worrying about the future. Um, we're just here in the here and now. Um, it allows us to tune into ourselves in the present moment. Again, um, tuning into our thoughts and our feelings and our sensations, um, as well as being able to tune into other people as well. So I think that when we're more tuned into ourselves and tuned into the present moment, it also makes way for us to be more tuned into others and, um, maybe even more empathetic in a way to how they might be, what they might be thinking or feeling. Um, and it allows us to be a bit more kind and curious in the present moment. Um, so more compassionate toward ourselves and more compassionate toward others. Um, how would you go like about practicing that? Yeah. So there's all sorts of different ways to go about practicing mindfulness. One of them we started with, which is, uh, being able to notice, um, when we're having a reaction. So being able to notice when we're feeling uh, like 
we're wanting to, for example, push something away or hold on to something, that grasping or that pushing away, um, those types of reactions and being curious about that. Um, it's about noticing when we have on my way to work today, when I notice like, oh, yeah, there's irritability is present. Um, I could I could kind of be unconscious to the irritability and just kind of let it consume me. Or I could take a moment, notice it and name it and see if I can like shift my spirit around like getting to work in the morning. So for example, my, my seven-year-old was in the backseat um, and I was feeling irritable about the traffic. I had a choice in that moment to stay irritable or like redirect my attention to something else, maybe start a conversation with him, maybe turn on some music, do something, anything else um, besides stay in that kind of state. So um, mindfulness just gives us that flexibility to notice how we're reacting to something and make a choice to do something different if we want, if that would be more effective. Um, ways of going about it. Um, I think, you know, traditionally we focus a lot, um, on cultivating mindfulness, um, through different types of daily practices. So for example, we can, um, we can increase our capacity to be more mindful, um, throughout the day by, um, bringing our awareness back to our breath. That's like kind of been a way of teaching mindfulness for centuries. Um, and the reason that can be helpful is because, um, we're always breathing and it gives us an anchor of our awareness and it allows us to connect our mind and body. And so it just brings us directly back to kind of ourselves and the present moment because each breath is connected to a brand new moment. And so that's why it's sort of a beautiful practice to, to do breathing practices. Um, breathing practices aren't for everyone. Um, I work with a lot of people um, day in and day out and teach mindfulness. And a lot of folks will share with me that um, breathing practices are a bit of a barrier because they make them feel anxious or they don't feel like they're very good at it. Um, it's hard. And all, all that can be really true. Um, so I, I mentioned breathing practices as, as a pretty like helpful way to cultivate mindfulness, but it's certainly not the only way. Um, a breathing practice that I do that helps uh, me just practice mindfulness is I'll breathe in and out for a period of time. Let's say it's 10 minutes in the morning. And as I breathe in and out, I'll count to 10. So count my in-breath is one, my out-breath is two, my in-breath is three, my out-breath is four, all the way up to 10. And then I'll count back all the way down to one. And so I'm practicing being in the present moment because I'm, I'm focusing on my breath and counting. And every time my mind wanders, I notice the wandering. And then I um, invite myself to like bring my mind back to counting and back to my breath. And that practice, doing that in the morning, helps increase my capacity for like concentration and focus and mindfulness. So then throughout the day, I tend to have a little bit more capacity to be in the present moment because I'm practicing it every morning, just like we would go to the gym or, you know, um, do any practice piano. Like the more we practice, the more we're able to just do it more automatically. <laughs> and so um, a morning meditation practice like that just increases our capacity to be in the present moment the rest of the day. Um, yeah. No, I, I think that's interesting. So what I'm kind of hearing you say is that there's different ways in which we can 
practice sort of mindfulness and there's not a one size fits all. Um, we're talking a little bit about today, or we're supposed to be talking about kind of in your career and your job, your place of work, um, what, you know, and, and, you know, using sort of the, the, this practice at work, what are some examples of how, you know, we might be mindful in that space? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so the resilience lab teaches, um, a skills group called Be Real, which is a collaboration between the Resilience Lab and the Center for Child and Family Wellbeing, which is a center that's through the UW Psychology Program. And Be Real is um, a skills group that is uh, based in mindfulness, um, some movement practices, some cognitive behavioral practices, some neuroscience that was authored by the staff at um, CCFW. Um, but the Resilience Lab is sort of at the helm of facilitating it on UW's campus, not just for students, but also for staff and instructors for this very reason, um, to think, to help staff and instructors, uh, employees of the UW, be able to bring more of a mindfulness-based uh, practice to their everyday work. Um, and so some of the things that we teach them um, come from um, these different sort of um, theoretical foundations like the cognitive behavioral sciences, mindfulness, movement-based practices. Um, so that's kind of the where I'm drawing from um, in terms of like theory is this this curriculum that we've been working with with CCFW that's well researched at this point and um, and so on. Anyway, um, some ideas are uh, Throughout the day, so mindfulness doesn't have to just be something, as I gave the example for, that we do in the morning. I gave such a traditional example of, like, doing a 10-minute breathing practice in the morning. I think that's what people tend to think about. Um, But there's also this opportunity to integrate mindfulness throughout our day. So I like to think about in between um, all the meetings that I have throughout the day, like the Zoom Zoom meetings or the in-person meetings, really taking a moment to arrive and setting my sort of like mind and intention and presence to the thing that's in front of me so that I'm not thinking about the meeting that I just came from or what I am going to cook for dinner tonight, um, but that I'm really just present with the people that I'm with um, in the time that we're sharing together and that I'm setting an intention for how I want my presence to be. And doing that like could take 30 seconds. So in between meetings, just doing a reset, like taking a breath, um, kind of putting in front of me, like, what am I going into? What am I hoping to get out of this meeting? How do I want to show up? Um, is a way of practicing mindfulness in, in like this little like micro way, um, this little micro practice, we call it uh, in between sessions. I talked to, uh, um, actually we invited this internal medicine doctor to campus in the spring of 2023, um, who wrote a book called joy is my justice. And she talked about how, um, she does this with her patients where before she like opens the door, like turns the handle and walks in to see her patient, she really just like lets go of the patient she just saw, sort of like, you know, um, uh, takes a moment to just like let go of that experience. I just saw that patient, let it go. And to really like make space for the new patient she's about to see so that she can go in there just with like a fresh kind of like intentional uh, way of being. And I don't know about you, but that's how I want my doctor to be. 
you know? No, I, I appreciate that. Cause I, you know, you can bring that baggage into the next meeting or when you're in that meeting, you can also be thinking about, you know, the to-do list that you have that's, that you want to get done instead of being in that meeting. Yeah. And so the reason going back to that, like 10 minutes of breathing that I do at the beginning of the day, I'm not trying to suggest that everyone should do that. I do really prescribe to a one size does not fit all. But having that type of a practice where we're practicing cultivating more of a mindful presence, that muscle, allows us throughout the day to notice when we might be like showing up with like a lot on our mind um, in the spaces that we occupy um, rather than being in the present moment. Um, And so I think that there's like a way in which carving out time to practice mindfulness can be helpful for all the other times when it really can be useful for us throughout the day. Um, other ways we can take, uh, okay, so there's a book called finding the space to lead, which is a great book written by the director of a fortune 500 company. Um, and she wanted to create a culture within her organization that was more like centered on mindfulness. And she offered a lot of really like pragmatic, um, ways that we can integrate mindfulness throughout the day. And one of them is just like setting outlook reminders on our calendar of like taking moments for mindfulness, taking short breaks. Um, and so at the UW, one of my practices is carving out time to be away from my office, off of my computer for a short period of time. Maybe it's during lunch, maybe it's mid morning and just going outside for a few minutes. And there's a mindfulness of the senses practice where we can just simply, simply quote unquote, um, pay attention to any of our senses. So I could spend 10 minutes outside and just pay attention to like what I can feel. Like maybe it's misty rain or a cool breeze or the sun's out. I could pay attention to what I could hear. Um, Maybe I hear some birds. Maybe I hear the leaves blowing. Maybe I also hear some construction or some traffic. Um, But I'm just kind of bringing my attention to the, uh, the present moment. I could pay attention to what I can see. And on a campus like UW, Um, that's a really special practice to just be able to notice your surroundings and like recognize what a beautiful place we work. Um, and I, uh, introduced this practice to a group of students, undergraduate students, uh, recently. And, um, I had an undergraduate student come back after 10 minutes and sit back down in the room that I was training in. And he offered his observation and he was like, not once since I've stepped on campus, have I noticed the environment? He's like, this place is beautiful. And it was really striking to me, just like how we can sort of walk around really unaware and unconscious. Um, I think we spend a lot of time walking and having our attention toward like maybe our devices these days, instead of just like looking up and really noticing our surroundings. And what we know through the research is the more that we're in the present moment, the more content we are. So when we walk around campus and we're really just in the presence of campus and maybe even offering a smile or acknowledgement to the people we pass, we tend to feel more content than if we're wandering around campus with our minds on the past or our minds out in the future or our minds on our device. No, I appreciate, I appreciate that. You know, I think a benefit of COVID, I guess, and, you know, working from home is, you know, being able to really do sort of that practice. Uh, I've, you know, unconsciously found myself just taking a moment outside especially when it's sunny here in Seattle, which doesn't happen very often. And just, you know, taking the the moments to look at my surroundings before, you know, going back inside into the next Zoom meeting. But, you know, doing that in the office space as well, 
um, I think makes complete sense. Yeah. And I think I want to emphasize that for you, that's like a benefit to you in terms of your own resilience in your work. Like it gives you sort of a mental pause. Maybe it allows you to um, feel a little bit more energy. Maybe it allows you to notice that like you're hungry or thirsty or uh, just need to like stretch or move your body. Like it gives you something um, when you're more present with yourself. But then also sort of like the example with the internal medicine doc, it, it offers your clients something too. Because then you're bringing them a version of yourself that's really present, um, maybe more attuned to the their needs in the moment. And I think that that all of us know what it's like to sit with somebody who's present. Um, and it's much more, um, it feels a lot better to work with, you know, uh, an attorney or a doctor or a therapist who's present and uh, or an instructor who's present. And um, so when it comes to thinking about like the application of mindfulness in our careers, I think part of it is, um, is like a selfless act. It's about the way that we show up for other people and that we're present for other people. Um, but also it is a way in which we can take care of ourselves and, and hopefully, um, address some of the things that come out in work environments like stress and burnout, um, or just kind of chronic fatigue. I, I work with, you know, folks across the university, And I'll be teaching them some of these skills and mindsets. And they'll say things like, this is the first time I think I've breathed all day. And clearly they've been breathing all day, but they just haven't noticed. You know, we're just kind of detached from ourselves. Or I'll invite them to do like stand up and stretch uh, in certain ways, bring some energy into their body. And they're like, well, I, I didn't realize like the way I've been holding my body is so uncomfortable. And they can just make these adjustments to make their lives a little bit more pleasant. There's a um, professor in the Foster School of Business named Christina Fong. She's awesome. And uh, she's found a way to integrate a lot of these different um, skills and mindsets into her um, into her instruction in Foster in the business school. And one of the things that she does is that she sets a timer for 15 minutes. And every 15 minutes, it, the little bell goes off and the students are invited to stand up. And in standing up, they're inviting some oxygen into their brain, which helps them like have some energy and the ability to like, you know, sustain her class. And at first, the students, she says the students find it a bit awkward in that first week because it's like unusual to have like, you know, stand up. She she just keeps lecturing to her. I mean, she's like at this point, she's she's just like she just just continues on and the students are expected to stand stand up. They might stretch a little bit and then they sit back down. And she said, by mid to late quarter, uh, there was an, they had the experience during the pandemic where at one point they had to go back online and they were like, don't stop the bell. Like they, you know, and so I think also this stuff like becomes something that we, we start to adapt to and we start missing like that moment where we step outside for a moment or where we, you know, check in with ourselves. I like that. I wish I had a professor who'd, who'd done that. Yeah. Um, so you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but can you really break break this down? How would practicing mindfulness help a professional be more resilient to stress at work? Yeah, well, um, there's, I mean, I think I could probably talk endlessly all day about all the different ways. Um, one of the ways is just being much more conscious of the way that we are, um, you know, reacting to the different stressors that that present themselves at work day in and day out. So I gave the example of the email, um, large projects, deadlines. And so being able to have some, um, 
skills and mindsets to be able to like have all of those different types of stressors coming at us and to be able to like cope with them with a, with some flexibility and grace. I don't know about you, but like, I want to be able to handle work stress with like that, that And so having that sort of mindfulness allows us to be able to, um, be able to kind of like account for all the different types of stressors that are happening and to be able to, um, have a, a way in which we can, you know, address them effectively. It also helps us interpersonally. So with our work relationships, um, in terms of like our relationships with clients or supervisors or colleagues, um, it both improves our ability to like, um, be present for them and just have more like interpersonal effectiveness, but also, uh, take care of ourselves, um, in relationship to other people. Um, and I think that it allows us to, um, for folks who are in professions where there might be a, a tendency for like burnout, um, these types of skills and mindsets can help us be able to, um, basically like integrate different practices that would help us address burnout, both like, um, practices in terms of like how we understand things, like just being able to like shift the way that we, we think and perceive things as well as like how we cope with things like physically and so physically and mentally and emotionally. Well, that, that makes sense. So for those who are interested um, in further kind of learning about um, mindfulness, what are some resources that they they can go to? I know you mentioned one book called finding the space to lead, but what are there, what are some other resources that folks could, could access? Yeah. So I think, um, if, if somebody is interested really in like, how do I integrate mindfulness into my work? Um, I would direct them to that book, finding the space to lead. If somebody was interested in like what types of skills and mindsets help me with resilience, I would direct them to a book called resilient by Rick Hansen, who's a, um, a neuroscientist and therapist and author, uh, speaker, um, from, California. He's, he's really affiliated with Berkeley Center for Greater Good. Um, him and his son, Forrest Hansen, have a podcast together. Um, I think that Rick Hansen is a, um, is a good place to start for somebody who's interested in some of these themes. For folks interested in um, just like what books or podcasts or articles can I read on the theme our own um, Center for Child and Family Wellbeing, CCFW, has a like an online resource library um, that is uh, that's great, and I would direct them to CCFW. Also, because CCFW offers workshops and trainings for the public, so folks could also participate in something more experiential. Um, and and they're um, such resident experts of ours uh, when it comes to mindfulness and compassion on campus, um, and close partners of the Resilience Lab. Um, and then I, I think that it's important to just also maybe note that there's a lot of really, um, amazing literature coming out right now around the intersection of how, uh, mindfulness and other compassion-based practices support our work around like racial equity. And, um, since that was something that was mentioned, I mentioned at the very beginning of our talk, um, I would direct folks to, for example, the work of Rhonda V. McGee, who wrote The Inner Work of Racial Justice, um, or um, the book that I mentioned called Joy is My Justice um, by Tamneet Sethi, Dr. Tamneet Sethi, who's an internal medicine doc that we brought to campus recently. Um, 
And so lots of different uh, ways that one could go about learning via, you know, text, podcasts. But then lastly, if somebody just wanted to start their own mindfulness practice, I think that um, downloading any of the kind of popular apps um, these days is a really great starting place too. So there's the app called Calm um, or Insight Timer or 10% Happier. Um, just choose which one you want. Um, but they, they're they all um, apps that provide talks or timers or guided meditations that can help people with some of the different ideas that I've been talking about in the podcast. Well, this is very informative. Uh, thank you, Megan Kennedy, the director of the Resilience Lab at UW for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you for tuning in to Career Conversations, an audio series created by the University of Washington Alumni Association for the UW alumni community and supported by the UWAA members. Career Conversations focuses on career topics that go beyond the usual to help you create and sustain a fulfilling work life. This series is one of several programs and events created and supported by the UW Alumni Association to help alumni, students, and friends connected to the University of Washington and each other. There are many other ways to stay connected and to be more involved in your Husky community, including career events and resources. Learn more and become a UWAA member at uwalum.com. I'm your host, Gina Top. Thank you for listening. Go dogs. Mm-hmm.